Welcome to IFA Talk, IFA Magazine's weekly podcast. IFA Talk is for professional investors only. Thank you. Thanks very much for joining us for the latest episode of IFA Talk, IFA Magazine's weekly podcast, where we talk to people who matter about the things that matter in the world of financial services. My name is Brandon Russell, and I'm the online writer here at IFA Magazine. And joining me on the podcast today is my co-host and IFA Magazine editor, Sue Whitbread. Hello, everybody. It's Sue here. And on today's IFA Talk podcast, our subject is multi-asset investing. And in particular, we're going to be discussing whether advisors really know what's under the bonnet of their clients' multi-asset portfolios or multi-asset funds. And our guest, who knows a thing or two about the subject, is Jordan Sriharan. And Jordan is a fund manager on the multi-asset fund team at Canada Life Asset Management. Uh, Jordan, welcome to IFA Talk. Perhaps I could ask you to say hello and uh, and introduce yourself. Yeah, of course. Hi, Sue. Hi, Brandon. Um, so, yes, I'm currently a fund manager at Canada Life Asset Management on the multi-asset desk. Um, prior to that, I um, was the head of the model portfolio service at Canada Genuity for, for many years. Uh, and prior to that, I worked at Mercer running institutional pension fund money. So very long term in my kind of investment philosophy and um, have always been multi-asset by, by background and, and where, I, where I stand today. Perfect, Jordan. It's really, really good to have you on the podcast then. Uh, can, let's kick off by getting your views on the big picture stuff. So mac- macroeconomic outlooks are always uncertain. Uh, do you think we should treat this moment in history differently to any other? Yeah, it's, it's, it's the age-old question, isn't it? Um, and I think I think every moment or period in, in economic history is, is different for a number of idiosyncratic reasons. Um, and I think the, the trick broadly is, is trying to draw, to build the information from those periods to build a picture of, of what might happen today. And that, that's, that's useful. Um, but I think when we try to, or when we attempt to forecast the future with any conviction, I think it can be a bit misguided. So there is, a, is you know, a, I think um, a balance to be had. And when we think about, you know, what is um, similar about today's environment to, to previous environments, I think um, in today's world where we have high commodity prices, you know, driven by exogenous events, to think back to the OPEC embargo of 1973, um, where, you know, OPEC embargo of the US for interfering in the Arab-Israeli conflict. Now, that's not dissimilar to embargoing Russian gas in 2022 when they invaded Ukraine. So there are, there, there are historic similarities as to what's going on geopolitically and how that's impacted asset prices globally. You know, high commodity price um, environment we live in today is, is a function of that. Right, and I guess what, what happened in that period in the 70s is, well, it led to quite a volatile inflationary environment, um, mm. and that forced central banks to hike quickly. If you think about, you know, monetary policy in those days was, was driven by inflation, and if, I think if we, you know, look at look at today's world, I think it's fair to say we're in a very similar mindset, where whereby inflation is dictating how tight or how loose monetary policy should be. I should add, you know, in the seventies we had a we had a decade in the sixties of, of lowish and stable inflation, and Guess what? Today, you know, we're in an era of high volatile inflation after a decade of low stable inflation. So, so there's a lot of lessons to be learned from the past. And I, I guess what when I think about what's different today, um, I, I think about um, the fact that we are reversing, in effect, the largest experiment we've had in monetary policy. You know, in in, in a generation that that's QE, and in engaging in quantitative tightening. You know, it's a very different environment to what we've seen before. Um, but actually, you know, in some ways, um, and this is perhaps a bit more slowly and perhaps more inadvertently, 
we are gradually reversing um, globalization and, and, and the impact that that's had over the past 20, 30 years in, in terms of you know how goods are manufactured and where labor is located. So um, and I had a just final point about the world today. You know, the cost of capital is, is much higher. We've seen that increase mm -hmm. over the last year. Um, and that actually means that, um, so, uh, you know, and, and what we live in today is, is far different from that seen over the last decade and a half, because we now live in a world of higher interest rates where the cost of capital is higher. And that, that forces a different decision to be made by both governments from a public level and, and consumers at a private level as to how they're going to allocate their income based on, on, on a world of higher interest rates that we now live in. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And uh, perhaps we can drill into the, the, the multi-asset funds themselves now then and multi-asset structures. Uh, I wonder what you see as some of the key challenges that, uh, that funds and fund managers, of course, are facing today and whether you think that it's possible to generate similar levels of historical performance in a world where we're seeing so much interest rates uh, much much higher than than the historical norms and and if you do i wonder how sure um so it, it's i guess i mean i've mentioned already once but a decade of low interest rates inadvertently creates a change in behavior uh, across people because when you think the cost of capital is is almost zero, then you're more inclined to take risk, whether it be what you're investing in and whether it be in what you want to borrow. And, and that, when, when, when you change um, people's mindsets, you know, in, 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 in economics, they call it moral hazard, which is this idea that you cause them to think in, in, in the wrong way. Um, I, think, I think people start to, to behave differently, builds the cost of investment for me. And actually, if you look across the investment piece, and I don't, and I don't mean multi-asset, but even if you look at sort of from, um, all the way down to kind of um, the part-time buy-to-let landlords who are seeing their cash flow eroded somewhat by paying higher interest rates now on, on the mortgages that they um, have borrowed. Uh, think about deposits at the bank are actually going down a bit because people are using money market funds which is paying a higher level of yield. Um, and even, even across, even think about the allure of bonds today, you know, long, long derided as return-free risk, bonds were, you know, the antichrist uh, for many years and now they're kind of Back, back in vogue. And so um, it, it, it's this change in behaviour that's starting to happen over the last, I don't know, six, nine months that, that we think is, is really interesting. But, it, but as, it's, as I said, it, you know, um, it creates challenges. And I think what the last decade did in particular was create um, a mindset whereby the only thing you could own was equity because they just went up and because you had a central bank that was willing to lower interest rates again or throw more QE back into the mix. Um, and your multi-asset form was almost guaranteed by how much, how many equities you had in your body. What was your overall exposure to the equity market? And that, um, you know, in, in, in a multi-asset land, what was happening is equities were dictating performance. Um, and actually your risk, your volatility um, was actually okay because asset price volatility was broadly speaking quite low during QE. Um, and I think, and this is kind of one of the reasons uh, that I, I thought about a lot over the last few years, I think what happened is that multi-asset fund managers just thought about risk in their multi-asset portfolios through an equity lens. And to them, it was all about, um, you know, how much equity risk should we take, where should it be? And that would be our defining kind of moment. And whilst I have some sympathy for that, what it does mean is that 
you know, they, they broadly ignore the, the bond and the alternative allocation that you can access in, your, in a, in a multi-asset portfolio. And for a low-risk investor, that's a quite a substantial part of their portfolio that in effect was on any of the red fund was being ignored by, by some multi-asset um, fund managers. And so, um, you know, and, and of course, if you look at risk profiling um, through, through school, um, the financial planning room, now, a lot of clients do come out in the kind of cautious to balance camp. And so um, I guess over time I wondered what kind of risk was being taken um, in, a, in, a, you know, in the world before 2022, whereby equity risk was the only kind of function of overall volatility um, without, without considering the, the, the correlation benefits of, of what fixed income alternatives could do. So I guess the challenge today is that a multi-asset portfolio that includes equities and bonds uh, and alternatives is now um, is now a, a lot much bigger um, toolbox, should I say, that, that that we can all access. And that, that that therein lies some of the challenge because you're now going from the one-dimensional equity risk lens to three-dimensional by thinking about how bonds and alternatives can improve the overall uh, or optimize your portfolio, should I say. And so when I think about the challenges that are being faced, um, I, I think we can see it in the growth in, in capital that's been raised in some of the more alternative investment trust structures that we've seen. Um, and they were kind of, I guess, designed and, and sold to investors of you know alternative income, paying a bond-like coupon structure. Um, and they were interesting. And I think about you know music royalty, aircraft leasing, catastrophe insurance even energy efficiency on their own they're all very you know they're all good ideas not bad ideas but i think they're not as attractive uh, in terms of the income they pay when you think about the world today where the fed are paying 4.75 percent of the base rate and the bank of england are paying four percent so i think the challenge is is how the world is going to adjust to higher rates and what the discount should what the appropriate discount rate should be for some of these more alternative income like strategies um and I think um, to, to, to that point, we're, we're already seeing some performance kind of come away from these ideas. And if I say come away, there is, there is a weaker share price performance than some of these more esoteric alternative um, investment trusts um, that may be more structural in nature rather than cyclical. Maybe these things need to be more discounted the price they're at to account for the fact that you can generate 4.75% by putting your money you know, in the US um for a year so it's, it's these kind of ideas that we need to think about that, that are challenging um can we generate the same rate of return is is, is a is a forecasting question that I, that I kind of claim to not be very good at um i think i think to, to answer that um in, in, in the most honest way if you can generate four percent from the bank of england that, that's that's a good point to start with for mm -hmm. most investors and so Sure, will we get the same type of equity returns we've seen in the last 10 years? Possibly not. But um, the fact that we can generate, you know, between, you know, four and a half, five and a half, maybe six percent, you know, in, in medium dated, even short dated to some extent, you know, sterling investment grade corporate bonds, um, I, I, I think, you know, we can generate the returns that we, we have done before. But to my earlier point, they won't come just through equity, they will come through other asset classes. Mm -hmm. Um, that will have slightly more what is that word normalized cycles. When when those assets sell off, there will be a natural repricing and capital will flow in that direction to buy up what they think are undervalued assets rather than before, where 
the only game in town was empty, so an empty sold off, everyone just piled back in, or you know, no one really um has let's say piled back into bonds since the repricing, but people do see them as a lot more attractive and are utilizing more for their kind of income um mandate. So I, I guess my the answer to my question is as long as we have um what I'd describe as more healthy interest rates, then there's absolutely no reason why we can't generate the same level of return going forward. Because just from holding, you know, clients' money in cash, we're generating, you know, three and a half, four percent today. So I, I think the outlook is positive in that respect. You are listening to IFA Talk, IFA Magazine's weekly podcast. Subscribe to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to be notified as soon as a new episode becomes available. And follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram at IFA Magazine. Before we get back into the positives and negatives of multi-asset funds, I just wanted to highlight that Quilter Financial Planning are back with a second series of their podcast, Beyond the Balance Sheet, where host Hannah Von Jones discusses the ongoings in the world of financial advice. Practicing advisors and external experts address common misconceptions, speak of overcoming hurdles and share inspiring stories from within the advice world. Check them out wherever you get your podcasts. Moving back to today's episode, Jordan, what are the hurdles and red flags that advisors should be looking for when investing their clients into a multi-asset fund? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, it's an industry that um, markets itself brilliantly. Asset management, you know, an industry does very well um, in terms of um, being able to, to, to sell the dream, should we say. Um, and, but, but when I look at multi-asset funds, which is kind of my peer group, which is where I spent, you know, all of my career thus far, um, I, 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 I do see interesting things and in the way um, some multi-asset funds um, describe themselves. I mean, I mean one, one of the things that I find interesting is um, those who describe as defensive. We're a defensive multi-asset investor. You know, we protect them, you know, we protect on the downside and we participate in the upside. You know, this holy grail of multi-asset investing, you know, we catch the tops and we avoid the bottom. Um, but, but, the, but the defensive investor is one that I find um, quite interesting because um, you often find that they, um, they're accompanied by, by language in their marketing. Like, we think the market's wrong because we think this. And it's kind of like, uh, no one's really right or wrong in investing. It's, it's kind of, you know, we're, we're, we're a state of constant flux and, and pricing can be incorrect for a while, but it's not often incorrect for a long time. Um, and, and what I think happens in, in these ideas of being defensive, we've been aggressive, and I've heard some, you know, managers characterize as aggressive, is that you end up only being correct for a, a couple of periods in the cycle when your star shines brightly because you are positioned to be either defensive or aggressive. And um, I don't know, I, I guess, you know, from a structural perspective, if you're a client investor in a defensive multi-asset fund, you're going to benefit when things when times are bad, but not when times are good, if that makes sense. And, and vice versa, if you're an aggressive, they call them aggressive, do they? they call themselves, you know, total return, all-encompassing multi-asset fund. Um, you only benefit when, when things are going well in the cycle. And just my personal view is that as a multi-asset investor and as a multi-asset fund, you need to be able to lend yourself to different market environments. You need to be able to, you know, ride the umbrella when it rains, but also, you know, to be able to put up the sunbed and enjoy the sun when it comes out. Because if, if you don't, you will find that your performance is quite volatile, but also um, only works in, you know, one or two seasons. It needs to be, you know, full seasons, full seasons, to generate good long-term total return to your clients. And I, I, I'd add one thing in to, to that as well, actually, is um, in, I mentioned in, my, in, in the previous point about um, this increasing focus on equity risk as a kind of function of overall risk management and multi-asset fund. I, I, I have found over the last you know, three, four, five years is multi-asset investors describing themselves as 
growth investors uh, or, or, or quality growth, quality growth investors. And I always question in multi-asset lands, I'm not sure anybody should have a defining equity style. I don't think anyone should be value or growth. Mm -hmm. or should, you should be willing to be nimble. And as the cycle adjusts, you, you own more value and you own more growth when, when the time is right. This idea of pitching yourself as a, as a, you know, sticking to our guns, we just do growth, means that you're going to have underperforming periods. And, you know, I dare say those funds have underperformed a significant amount in the last year and a half, too. And so, so that's kind of another thing I'd flag. If your multi-asset fund is telling you they, they have a structural position where they're defensive or aggressive or, or, or growth or value, you know, I, I just question, you know, how, how they generate long-term return, because it is difficult if you're just going to pitch yourself as a kind of, let's say, one-trick pony, which is not, not fair, but it ends up being how, you know, they end up characterizing performance because they come away and tell clients, oh, and unfortunately, um, you know, growth is out of favor, value is out of favor, so we didn't do so well. Our view, the team, the, 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 you know, my boss and the team kind of the life are, are, you know, it's not about being positioned for one one outcome. It's about ensuring that you're generating enough return for maximum a number of potential outcomes and so not kind of betting your clients money on, on red or black which is kind of what happens in those um in those kind of philosophies should i say uh, and so yeah that that's kind of what i would look out for when i'm looking for a multi-asset fund mm. i think that's a great point about the red flags and the the descriptors that are used because at the end of it it's all about client suitability isn't it for the underlying client and, and looking to meet their needs over the longer term so particularly a defensive uh, investor in a def so-called defensively uh, labelled fund last year might not have recognised that as a defensive portfolio with the value of bonds literally falling out of bed just as much as, if not more than equities. But that's another subject. So you mentioned earlier that broadly you have a quite a positive outlook as to where the future lies. Um, so I just thought maybe we could flesh out that a little bit and see in your view then what really does the future look like then for multi-asset investing? Is it here to stay or should we be thinking otherwise? Yeah, um, I mean, I absolutely think it, it's here to stay. I think it's it's a, a really um, robust way of investors to access, you know, global financial markets without... Um, you know, especially for those who, who are not perhaps as financially um, savvy as, as others and don't have the time to research, I think multi-asset provides a really good one-stop shop for, for, for clients who need one of the above, um, well, let, let, let's not say above average growth, but, but even, you know, growth um, of, of, a, of a lump of capital that grows with, with the economy. That's what the multi-asset investing is trying to do. It, it, it's build a pot of capital that grows you know as, as as the global economy grows and that's why you're able to multi-asset to dip into us equities emerging market equities you know um, european bonds because wherever the growth is in the global economy you're able to um you know um find opportunities and, and, and ensure that that pot of wealth is, is is slowly compounding out return in both you know short medium and, and long-term time horizons where, where the future of multi-asset investing um, goes is, is a really interesting question because, like all things in investment, it's evolution, not revolution. And, and I guess when I think about that, I think um, I think a world where multi-asset funds are driven by well, have got committee-driven outcomes. I, I think those days are, are gradually fading. And I, you know, I think back, you know, the last 10, 15, 20 years, 
where um, you know a team of seven or eight people would sit together once a month and thrash out the markets and go based on this. You know, I think X, Y, and Z. I, I just think those investment processes are a bit outdated. Depending on, I'm not saying it should be one person, you know, sitting around commanding mm. a portfolio around, but 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 more that um, I think decision making processes need to be adaptable. They need to be nimble. Uh, and I think in a world where interest rates are higher, where and that leads to a lot more price discrimination. We, we, we will find that the prices of tech um, companies, maybe even you know smaller tech growth businesses, may you know be lower than they have been for some time. And as a result, there is a, a, an approach that's more nimble and is able to you know um, allocate more as that um, as that price kind of further deepens, further weakens, I should say. Um, it's going to make better returns than committees of, as I said. Separate people trying to come to the same idea, the same conclusion in one go. I, I think that's kind of slightly outdated. Um, and and the, you know teams that they meet monthly, you know, put as rebalanced quarterly. I, I I just think, particularly over the next three to four years, as interest rates are um, a bit more volatile. Um, I just I just don't my, 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 in my kind of um, I don't know what the right word is, but in, in my kind of um, purest view of how market asset money should be run. I think it's more difficult, the more cumbersome, the more faults there are on to the kind of decision-making process because actually you need to be nimble, you need to be adaptable, you need to be able to, to, to say with high conviction, yes, that asset, you know, whether it be a bond or equity, says repriced enough, we think it's worth investing in now. But think about, in this, sorry to go off a bit of topic, but if think about the end of Q3 last year when the gilt market was in disarray mm. over, over the mini yeah, budget. the LDI and stuff, wasn't Absolutely. it? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's it's very difficult. And I, I, know I would add, not 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 to, to both, but, you know, we were able to add to index moon fields in that period in our portfolios. And, but but that's because, you know, in a, in a streamlined process where there's you know, myself, my co-fund manager, head of marketing, we're thinking about things, you know, um, side by side. Um, you're able to be more nimble, but and we were able to add to it because with also with, with the luxury of having fixed income fund managers working full time on their fund around up and equity managers working full time around, you know, you get some real kind of information. But I think more importantly, if you're in a committee of seven or eight people, the decision to invest in gilts at the end of September is one fraught with danger, right? And other people, you know, sit back and go, no, we can't touch them, others go, it's a good idea. You never really come to um a clear high conviction decision um mm. at the end of all that and so that's why i just think the multi-asset funds generally rely on a deep research process a deep pool of people feeding into it but ultimately decision making has to be carried out by you know one two three people at the top who have taken that all into consideration and i think that's where multi-asset funds will will kind of benefit over the next few years as we have a more volatile environment mm. um just one thing i want to add on on, on future multi-asset is um it is certainly going to be a lot more, well, it will be a more global portfolio than five years time for most people. And I think I think back to the last, you know, even at MERS, you know, 10, 10, 11, 12 years ago, there was a lot of, you know, UK focused exposure in, in corporate pension schemes. And, and I can see that as, as I went mm. through my career. And I, and I think that's starting to dwindle a bit. There's lots of statistics that we've seen post the LBI fallout about how UK pension funds have gradually allocated less to UK equity and more to mm. UK gilts and you know the, the pain that caused them. But you know, I, I guess my point is that the institutional world has gradually moved away from uh, the UK buyers and, and multi-asset funds in their more retail form perhaps have been a bit slower to 
um, take on board that global view. But but I think if you fast forward to five years, a lot more multi-asset funds will have a, a global um, makeup to them, both whether it be equities or, or bonds, will be a lot more considered in that respect. And actually, one of those reasons why I think about our portfolios today, you know, we have treasuries and gilts in them, and that's because the US is further along their monetary policy cycle than, than mm. we in the UK. And so um, they will be the first to cut rates when that happens. And I'm not going to suggest it's going to happen this year or anytime soon. But when they do, the value of treasuries will, will, will go up compared relative to the value of gilts, which are, you know, They've got a higher level of inflation embedded in the economy and they're you know, not as far through their monetary policy cycle. So it's that kind of thinking about the world from a, from a bond perspective. And I think perhaps wasn't always there in multi asset lands, um, certainly pre 22, 21, maybe, that, that I think people will see, you know, clear and obvious change. Um, and just the last thing before I waffle on too much about this point is that <laughs> I, think, um, I think the way multi asset funds communicate performance and the journey of their fund. I, I think that will change through time as well. I think I feel like up to now it's been it's been fun not everyone's talking to the clients, speaking at the clients, you know, talking at them about what's going on and why it's going on, rather than talking with them and explaining with you know to them why why they're doing what they're doing. And um that's something that, that, that we're keen to do more is, is take part in the journey and and you know we we do Various kind of communication, stuff, you know, brief, whether it be through webinars or through written stuff. But we always try to talk about what 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 the journey is that we're on and what we're trying to do to achieve that. So we hold ourselves accountable, really, and so we can be as transparent as possible about where we're going and what's going to happen. So if we say X and Y happens, we can put our hands up and say, you know, didn't know that. But if we say X and X happens, then we can be held accountable and and, and talk about, you know, why why performance and what a portfolio is doing as well as it could be or in some cases there are periods when it doesn't do well and we can be transparent almost like that and I think that journey is important that only comes from you know consistent communication whereby you're talking with the client rather than talking at the client. Perfect okay then John so we are quickly coming towards the end of today's episode but just to wrap up we always ask this question at the end of our podcast so if you had the power to change one thing in the world of financial services what would it be? Um, yeah, I, 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 it's it, it's a tough question, but I think I think in reality, when I, when I think about um, when I think about my friends, I think my family, and I think what what do they what do they not see? I, 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 how, how do they how are they not able you know to do more with kind of their small pots of money? I come, I, it strikes me that accessibility still is not is not you know there for everybody, and mm-hmm. I'm not even suggesting that people with no tech experience or no Financial understanding, um, lack lack of access. It's it, it's just it's just everybody. And you don't have to have huge sums to to invest. You know your money in, into the global economy, which is what I like to see multi asset fund as a proxy for. Um, and so, how 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 do we improve that? It's 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 a tough question, and I guess it's a mixture of public and private. You know, capital that comes together to create something. Um, and you know. I think many will point to, you know, Harvey's land down as a democratization of finance and, you know, other kind of platforms and rights of, you know, Charles Stanley Direct and Fidelity and so on. They've done, done a really important job. Um, but, but, but I don't know if everyone understands how they're able to access that, what sums they need, what the costs are involved. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, costs in, in finance are coming down and we, we can see that through, through ETF, we can see that through lots of different mechanisms like I guess 
how can we improve accessibility um, is, is, is a really important question. And may, maybe the answer is kind of quasi-government platforms, you know, where, whereby they're able to take um, um, tech, tech technology, take the accessibility and provide everybody with a kind of one-stop, you know, shop. So I, I don't know how you how you implement that without kind of creating conflicts and actually the whole platform model is conflicts in the same ways, right? For different reasons. And so I don't know how you get how you get that out um in a in a kind of more more digestible form. But but maybe the answer is through you know through payroll, through, through corporate payroll, whereby um people are able to access through their PAYE, you know, with the government um ways of ways of in, investing some of their, you know, just put, you know, whatever their net cash is after tax on their PAY you can go into and I know it happens through DC schemes and uh, mm. you know, I'm not going to reinvent policy the policy wheel here. Um but I think but I think better partnership between you know payroll um, corporate HR and, and and you know um platforms would be one way to get people to be able to invest more in a more um uh, sort of scalable manner. Um and, and what, 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 what I just kind of finish that off with is um it's not um it's not that these things don't exist now actually Canada Life we've got you know really great financial um applications where we can go online through our company portal and understand more about we want to invest more in charity more there's, there's lots of business like Canada Life does it's fantastic and I can see how you love it but I'm not convinced having you know had two or three jobs in my career that everyone has been able to do that to the same extent um, and I think if the government were able to sort of engage in a a program that allowed people, you know, of, of all income streams to, to think about how they might invest in their savings in a, in a safe, kind of measured, uh, sustainable manner. I, I think that's going to be it's going to benefit everybody in the long run, really. Oh, I like that, Justin. Just it's Justin, sorry, I like that, Jordan. And particularly, it makes me think about accessibility to sensible financial solutions just to try and stop people distracting them from TikTok and investing in crypto and all the latest fashions where they think that these are get rich quick schemes which could end up costing them an absolute arm and a leg so yeah. I'm with you on that awareness thing the question always comes back whose who's responsibility is that right and, and, it, mm. and it ultimately it's the, the whole public private partnership part so the government through you know um you know Complete the, the PAYCP system, corporates through their responsibility to their employees, you know, should need to come together really to find a solution that allows people to access them in, in a more um in a more in a more clean and obvious manner. Now I'm not saying everybody who has a job to have access to it, it, it can roll out further, but I think if you start at that kind of that level, then it's easier to kind of roll down to other other income um other income levels as well. Really. Mm -hmm. oh, true. Well, as Brandon said, I think that's that's our time slot gone for today, which sped by very, very quickly. And so I must, John, thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. And I can honestly just summarise it as a, just what seemed to me like a really honest assessment as to what's going on in what you call multi-asset land. <laughs> and your points about diversification, about evolution, not revolution, and having a nimble approach really resonate with me and I'm sure that they will resonate with our listeners today who are advisors who are just uh, facing choices about which asset which multi-asset strategy should they select for their 
particular clients, they are bombarded with choice. And so sometimes cutting through that and actually getting down to first tax really does help. So thank you for your clarity and transparency today. No, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. IFA Talk is for investment professionals only. All material has been carefully checked for accuracy, but no responsibility can be accepted for inaccuracies. Whatever appropriate, independent research and whatever necessary, legal advice should be sought before acting on any information contained in this podcast. And value of investments and income from them can go down as well as up. You may not get back the amount you originally invested.